Greetings, brethren. Indeed, it's good to see you all again. It's been about a year, I think, a little over a year. Uh, first time in the, the new building, new church. And it's always good to have a place to meet. Uh, I'm a little envious. Not that we don't have a place to meet, just you've got a place that you have full use of anytime you, you need it. Uh, you don't have to schedule meetings or, or what have you. Um, I want to give a, a call out to those who are watching uh, via live stream, uh, those, my friends down in Clearwater, Florida, who live streaming there, your local, local services. Good to see you all. Or, it's good to be with you, but that way I can't see you. Unfortunately, you can see me. Um, and of course, uh, my local brethren down in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, who may be live streaming as well. Good to, good to be with you on this Holy Sabbath day with you. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. Um, a sermon is not a counseling session. Um, sometimes maybe we are uh, counseled to a certain degree if, if, if happen to be speaking directly to you. Uh, there's so much that can be said in a sermon that we don't have time to say. You know, Bill's looking at me with a smile. He, he knows precisely what I'm talking about. Uh, that's why you know, a sermon's difficult to prepare oftentimes because you have so much information and you've got to condense it into this 45-minute, um, hour-long message. Um, so what we try to endeavor to accomplish in a sermon is to inspire you, maybe to motivate you to think a little bit. To, to teach to a certain degree, but we're not going to answer all the questions that may come to mind as we present whatever the message may be. And those of us who, who speak on a regular basis um, know what I'm talking about. I can't read your mind. You can't read mine. There may be things going on in my mind right now totally devoid of what I should be here for. You don't know. I don't know what you're thinking. Um, God knows. He knows my mind. He knows my heart. He knows what I'm thinking. But all I know about you and all you know about me is what you observe, what you see, what's out there to be noticed. And so what we know about one another is completely, is completely subjective. It's, uh, we see what we see, and we, we make our, our determinations, our opinions. Unfortunately, we, we make assessments of one another. We make judges. We, we make judgments, excuse me, um, about one another. And sometimes it's unfair. But once we get to know one another a little bit better, we have a pretty good idea who we are as, 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 as family, as, as neighbors, as friends, as brethren in God's church. And we think we have a pretty good idea um, that we, we know one another pretty well. But we can't read one another's heart. I'm going to go through some scriptures uh, today, and I'm going to, to quote them. You don't have to turn to every one unless you choose to. But I'm going to look at 2 Corinthians 5.17 that reads, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he or she is a new creation, a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new, behold, the new has come. 
So I read a scripture like that. I ask a question to you. You don't have to answer. The question is, has the old passed away from you? Have you put away the past, who you were in the past, in your process of repentance, have you become new, something different? Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly to you, in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So I read scriptures like this, these passages that were written to God's people, Corinth, Colossae. And why, I ask, in light of these scriptures, if these scriptures mean what they say, and I have no doubt that they do, why do we continue to struggle with the same thoughts, the same desires, the same feelings we had before conversion or before we entered in this course of conversion? Why? Now, maybe I'm not speaking to anyone in this room. Maybe you're not struggling with anything in this life. Maybe you're not struggling with temptations or desires, some of the things that are mentioned here. But when we answered the call and accepted Christ as our Savior, we accepted him as our Lord and Master, he did not throw a switch, he did not press a button and eradicate by decree everything that you have become. As a product of this world, it's been said we're all a product of our childhood, the way we were raised, and our experiences, things that we confronted or confronted us in this life. Everything about you shaped by the environment in which you were raised. It didn't just shut off when we made a decision, made a commitment, and when we committed to repentance and went under the waters of baptism. And what is repentance, by the way, but change? Making a change, a process of changing a 180, an about face, if you will, becoming something that you were not before, improving, going forward, progressing, growing into something better. We must, as Scripture tells us in Romans 12, must all transform or we will conform to the God of this world. The prince of the power of the air, we are familiar with that spirit being. He wants to control your mind. And that's what I want to talk about today, your mind. Is your mind at peace? I've entitled the sermon, Peace of Mind. He wants to control your mind, and he will if we don't fight for it. If we don't make some effort to keep him away. And even though we are, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 reads, a new creature, even though we are a new creature, we continue to battle the lust of the flesh 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We still battle the world and the adversary. Satan and his continuous goal is to infiltrate your thoughts with his. If he can control your thoughts, he can begin to control your life. And I'm not talking about possession, demon possession. We're just talking about you and me, God's people, being influenced by the adversary. Another passage, again, you don't have to turn there. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We're not war. We're in a war. We're in a battle. We're in a fight. But not as we typically understand the terminology. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. We have the power to destroy these strongholds. What, what are these? These, these um, fortresses, these holds of, that Satan may have over us, such as uh, doubt, deception, unbelief, pride, hardness of heart. Maybe defense mechanisms, as some like to refer to them, that keep us in deception. We try to, oh, we try to make excuses for why we are the way we are. Whether it's denial, avoiding the truth, avoiding what's right before us, blaming others, which, they, which psychiatrists call projection, displacement, taking our frustrations out on others. You know, we're frustrated about, maybe we're frustrated about ourselves and our lives, so we take it out on others. Rational, rationalization, making excuses or justification before, for our behavior. These are thought patterns that we can refer to as what Bible refers to as strongholds, thought patterns which are independent from God, shaped by our environment. Another passage. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive in the obedience of Christ, to obey Christ. Taking every thought and we talk about our mind, that's what we're talking about, right? Our thoughts, our thought processes, what we're thinking about, what's in our mind, it's who we are. The word thought is translated from Greek, noema, which basically means mental perception. Thought, it could be that which thinks, the mind, thoughts, or purposes. As a definition. Paul writes to the Corinthian church about a man who was excommunicated for committing a grave, egregious sin. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 5.1. You don't have to turn there, but we know the story. This man who was, who was engaged in an incestuous uh, uh, relationship. It was pretty serious, and he was removed as a result of this sin. Later we read where it's cropped up, the situation, this individual. In 2 Corinthians 2.10, we see that the incestuous person, according to Paul, ought now to be forgiven. And he writes this in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, 
I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Representing Christ, in other words. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted, not be deceived by Satan, or that Satan should get an advantage. Literally, that we would not be defrauded by Satan. So, so that we would not be outwitted and defrauded by Satan. For we are not, brethren, and we need to take notice of what he says here in verse 11. We are not ignorant of his devices, ignorant of his schemes, ignorant of his designs. Same word. No am I. We are not ignorant of what he's thinking. What is he thinking? Does he know what you're thinking? Can he read your mind? I see no indication in Scripture that he can actually look into your mind and read your thoughts. And maybe someone would want to debate that, and that's okay. He doesn't have to. He knows who you are. It's not like God. God can read your heart. He can read your mind. He knows what you're thinking. He knows everything about you. He knows the hairs on your head. Everyone, count them. It's a lot easier to do that with me now. now Pammy has a little bit more trouble. She's got a lot more hair than I do. But if he knows every sparrow that falls, he reads, he knows every hair on your head. He can count them. He knows everything about you. How does he do that? How can he do that? I don't know. I'd be the last one to try to explain that. I don't know how he does anything. Through his power, yes. But what is that? Holy Spirit, yes. The power of the Holy Spirit. How does, he, how does God do what he does? How does Satan do what he does? I don't know how he influences you and me. I don't know how he provokes you and me. I don't know how he deceives you and me. I don't know and you don't know either. All I know is what scripture tells me, that he's real and that he's active and that he accomplishes these, these things. That's all I need to know. So therefore I have a responsibility to do something, to avoid being deceived being carried away by the God of this world. I should not be ignorant of his devices. Do I know exactly how he does it? No, but I know he has plans. I know he has schemes. I know he has methods. I know he has ability to deceive. And that's all I need to know. I don't need to know how. So deception. Satan gets an advantage. So here we are. Paul is talking about forgiveness of this person. Now when someone's committed a really serious sin, especially if they committed it against yours truly, you know, they've hurt me personally, I have a little bit of difficulty. As a human being, forgiving that person. Paul was talking about forgiveness. Here was a, a really serious sin. This person was removed, but apparently things are changing, and he's, he knows these people have a forgiving heart, and he wants them to exercise that. 
He doesn't want that. He doesn't want the people to be carried away by Satan's designs because Satan will take advantage of someone who will not forgive. Because he can see that. If someone harbors unforgiveness in their heart, Satan takes note of that and he will, he will exploit that. I've known those individuals personally that have difficulty forgiving. And I try to convince this, this, this individual that you really need to find that capacity. You need to find it in your heart and mind, the capacity to forgive. Because it's about your survival, spiritually, that you do so. Because the person that you need to forgive may, may have forgotten whatever it is he needs to be forgiven for. Unforgiveness is one of the major reasons people cannot let go of the past. I know of individuals, especially one individual that's very close to me, happens to be a brother of mine, who cannot forgive another brother of mine. They're in their late 50s and early 60s now, and they've been feuding since they were teenagers, and they cannot get past it. And it causes problems in their relationship. It causes problems in their personal, individual, spiritual lives. So at some point, after 40, 50, or 60 years, you may want to start giving consideration to letting it go. Finding that capacity to forgive. But you better be sure that Satan, the adversary, the devil, is going to exploit that, that situation. Oh, he loves it. He eats it up. He sees it, and he zeroes in on it, and he's going to fuel it any way he can. So we can remain in bondage. And this is what Paul is talking about there. We need to not be ignorant of Satan's devices. We have an opportunity to forgive. It's going to be, it's going to be a, a release for all of you to be able to do this, to find that capacity to forgive. But I fear, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians eleven three 3, that lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds, your noema, should be corrupted from the simplicity that is Christ. Our minds, who we are, can be corrupted to the point we think our own subjective thoughts are from God when we should be thinking every, taking every thought into captivity to the, to the obedience of Christ. Taking every thought, not just a few thoughts, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I have a quote here from Martin Luther, the the famous Protestant reformist, Martin Luther, who's kind of a weird dude. Okay, I'm just being honest. I mean, you read some of his writings, you think, think, I'm thinking to myself, there's something not quite right about this guy. But that's that's my opinion. But he does say something, he does make a, a comment here that we can probably find some common ground. He writes, The poisonous serpent takes such delight in doing mischief. Of course, we know who he's referring to. That he not only deceives secure, deceives secure and proud spirits with his delusions, but also undertakes through his deceptions to bring into error those who are well instructed and grounded in God's word. He vexes me often so powerfully and assaults me so fiercely with heavy and melancholy thoughts that I forget my loving Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop myself right there. Can you relate to that sometimes? 
Are there times that you have a tendency maybe to forget who your Lord is? And you say, no, that, that never happens. Maybe it doesn't. But sometimes when we're drifting and we're engaged in something that we shouldn't be, we've kind of forgotten him. We've not carried, we've not taken those thoughts into captivity in the obedience of Christ. That I forget my loving Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or at least behold him far otherwise than he is to be beheld. There is none of us so free, but that often he is thus deceived and bewitched with false, false opinions. Therefore, we should learn how to know this conjurer. To the end, he may not come behind us, being sleepy and secure, and so delude us with his witchcraft. And truly, if he find us not sober and watching, and not armed with spiritual weapons, that is, with God's word and with faith, faith, then most surely he will overcome us. He's right on, the, he's right on target with these remarks. Satan is capable, brethren, he is very capable of putting thoughts into your mind. How do I know this? As I pointed out before, I don't know how he does it, but I know what God's word says. In fact, the first mention of the title Satan in the Bible is in 1 Chronicles 21. Of course, Satan means the adversary. And it reads thusly, you don't have to turn there. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. You're probably familiar with the story. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should, he, why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Verse 4 of 1 Chronicles 21. But the king's word prevailed against Joab. David didn't listen. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. Now David did precisely what God had instructed him not to do. He was going to take this census. He was going to count his warriors. He, didn't need, to, he need, didn't, need to, didn't need to do that. I mean, what's so bad about that to begin with? What's so bad about taking a census? Well, this illustrates the deception of Satan. He knew that David was a man after God's own heart. He knew that David relied on God. And he took an opportunity because he knew something about else about David. There was a little bit of ego going on there, a little bit of pride. There was a lot you know, that uh, David displayed in his life that got the attention of the adversary. So the sin of David numbering the people consisted in its being either to gratify his pride, to ascertain the number of warriors he could muster for some mm, meditated plan of conquest, if you will or to institute permanent system of taxations. Whatever the reason was, there was something he deemed necessary to provide an adequate establishment for his agenda. But it was wrong. Satan's scheme was to get David to rely on his resources rather than God. See, it was, it was David who had made statements about the fact that 
He didn't have to rely on his armies or his horses and so forth, that he only needed to have faith in God to deliver. But somehow he decided to take this census against the will of God and against the protests of Joab. He knew the battle belonged to God, regardless of the number, but he did it anyway. And there were consequences. There were consequences for his actions, and 70,000 fell as a result of his disobedience. All because, as Scripture says, Satan put it in his heart to take this census, to disobey God. See, it begins with our thoughts. What we think is right, we know the passage, there's a way that seems right to a man, but death is the, always the end thereof. Proverbs 14, and we have it repeated in Proverbs 16, 25, there's a way that seems right to a man. We can convince ourselves that we are right. And we can use these strongholds, if you will, to convince ourselves, to reinforce ourselves that we are right. There's another individual we read about that was, that was deceived by Satan during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, John 13. Already, Satan was working on Judas. There was something there, there was something about Judas that got the attention of the adversary. Luke also mentions it in Luke 22.3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He entered into him. Now, it's not to, to assume that, that he entered personally into the body of Judas, but only that he brought him under his influence. He worked upon the corruptions of his heart. He baited his temptations commensurate to his personal malice and covetousness. We read elsewhere, and that's why it's always important to look at the broad context. We can find out a little bit more about how Satan works. Six days before the Passover, John 12, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, this fragrant plant, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But, verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6 reads, he said this, he said this, excuse me, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Satan had already seen that the covetous nature in Judas took advantage of that, entered into him. Influenced him, persuaded him. The heart of Jesus was, excuse me, Judas was wide open and exposed to the influence of Satan. Satan exploited the covetousness which was already there. When Judas realized what he had done, 
He took his own life. We see how Satan works. Are we open? Are we leaving ourselves vulnerable to his devices, his schemes, his noema, his thoughts? Breaking into the context, another passage, Acts 5.3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Ananias and Sapphira selling property to give to God's people, to give to the church, keeping some of it back for themselves. It was all a plan to look charitable, but yet it was all self-service. It wasn't for the right reasons. You know the, the story. Won't go into the details. Why has Satan felt to lie to, to attempt to deceive? The deception which he meant to practice was to keep keep back part of the price. Satan influenced that. Now the spirit... Expressly, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 In the latter days, some will depart from the faith. Now, does that mean we're talking about faithful Christians or do, are we talking about apostatizing? You see, there's some debate going on there, but either way, if it's somebody who is using the faith to apostatize, they would apostatize from the belief of the truth of the gospel from God's true people, or they were God's true people. It doesn't really matter. The point is that they would depart from the faith. They will, by virtue of spirits, fallen angels, demons, what have you, they will depart from the faith. They will either influence others or they will fall away themselves. In any case, the point is clear that man, men, and women will be, especially in the latter times, will be influenced by the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, the spirit that does now work in the children of disobedience. It should not be a surprise, brethren, that believers struggle with irrational feelings, negative thoughts, which ultimately will lead to sin. Because that's where it begins, right? It begins in the mind. We think about it, we contemplate it, we entertain it. The Tenth Commandment, we always break before we break, violate the other nine. It's all, it all begins in the heart and the mind. We have no idea, brethren, as I, as I alluded to at the outset, we have no, no idea what's going on in the minds of one another unless we have the strength to disclose to someone that we're confident in. Those of us in the ministry, we, we have occasion to converse with and counsel with individuals who are, will divulge things that they normally would not tell anybody else. And oftentimes they won't even tell ministry because they're embarrassed, they're concerned that maybe someone would think they're mentally ill because that's a, you know, that's a very common Expression today, mentally ill, mental, mentally handicapped, mental illness. But God knows 
before we do what's going on in our minds. Psychologists often refer to chemical imbalances or patterns of the flesh. And if we are ignorant to Satan's devices and his schemes, this may be the diagnosis that comes to mind. We don't think about, we don't ask any other questions, but there must be, must be something going on here. Maybe he's exposed to a roundup, you know, weed killer. Maybe it's the vaccines that he took when he was a youngster. Maybe it's medication, maybe it's Ambien. Maybe it's the hormones in the food, uh, the steroids in the milk, uh, or in the chicken, which, by the way, is a myth. There are, no, there are no hormones or steroids in chickens. I know everybody thinks they are, but they were banned back in the 50s. They're, they don't exist. But we keep hearing that, you know. That's why these chickens are so big, all the hormones and the steroids in the chickens. No, they're just feeding them well. And they're not, a lot of them, some of them are free range, some of them are not. But they grow real fat. And we say, oh, man, they're blowing up, you know. They're, they've been fed with hormones, steroids. And they affect our minds, you know. And these, these are all, all, every scenario we can think of, but we don't question what could be causing this, something that's amiss in individuals. Yes, body chemicals can get out of balance and cause hormonal imbalances. Toxins from failed organs can cause people to, to behave in, in an uncharacteristic way. We were talking about that recently. There, um, toxins from uh, a diseased liver can, can cause someone to be, to be dizzy, to, to speak uh, erratically, and, and behave in ways that's uh, uncharacteristic of their normal personality. All these things do take place, but we're quick to diagnose people who have mental problems are just struggling with something as it's chemical imbalance. Um, is something going on there? It could be. I'm not saying there's not. But we, have, we, we tend to ignore, oftentimes, the obvious. Can a chemical produce a personal thought? Just asking. Can a chemical trigger neurotransmitters to cause us to think about something or do something that we normally wouldn't? To have a desire, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We know what happens. What causes a young man to take the lives of his entire family? We read about that recently in, in Denver, Colorado. It's just, just over my head. Hard to believe. And a man would stand there in, in, in an interview and talk about how he's missing his family, all the while knowing in the back of his mind that he, he caused their deaths. What causes a man to do that? Medication. You know, you hear all the, the, all the, the speculation out there. You know, what is it? What causes that? What, 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 what provokes that? What promotes that? What motivates someone to go to such extremes? I can't, it's, it's, again, it's beyond my comprehension. And it's tra- it's, it, the tragedy is just beyond belief. But yet it happens. What causes it? What causes a young man to walk into a school and shoot it up? What promotes that? Too much Ritalin? Chemical imbalance? Pesticides? Water? Maybe there's something in the water. Maybe it's too much fluoride. What, what causes a young man to do that? 
People say we need to do something about mental illness. Every time this happens, and it's been happening on a regular basis, I say a regular basis, consistently since 1996. Columbine, Colorado. We never heard of a young man shooting up a school until 1996 when these two men committed that heinous act. And we've had the copycats ever since. What goes on in the minds of these young people? I mean, vaccines have been around since the 50s, because I've heard that, you know, maybe some vaccines. They've been around, how far back do vaccines go? Anybody have any idea? When we start, when do we start giving school children vaccines? I know when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, we, were, we, had, we had to take vaccines to go to school. But they've been around all this time, never heard about a young man going into a high school and shooting fellow students. Well, once it started, but we blame everything, anything and everything. We start with guns. It's the guns' fault, right? It's because of guns. We hear that. Mental illness. So we need to do something about mental illness. But what causes this mental illness? I want to read from a book briefly. And this is a book that kind of inspired this sermon. It's by Neil T. Anderson, The Bondage Breaker. You may have read the book. But I, and I don't agree necessarily with everything that I read in this book, but he, he talks about something here that got my attention. Um, it's about a young boy, five years old, and he calls him Danny. I want to read this to you for a moment and pay attention to what he's, he's saying, especially about what this young man, five years old, is going through. He said, since we can't read another person's mind, we have to learn to ask the right questions. Five-year-old Danny was sent to the office of his Christian school for hurting several, several other children on the playground. He had been acting aggressively toward others and was restless in class. His teacher said, I'm puzzled by his recent behavior. It isn't like Danny to act this way. Danny's mother was a teacher at the school. When she asked her son about Jesus, he covered his ears and shouted, I hate Jesus. Then he grasped his, grasped his mother and laughed in a hideous voice. We asked Danny whether, whether he had ever heard voices talking to him in his head. He looked relieved at the question and, and volunteered that voices were shouting at him on the playground to hurt other kids. The thoughts were so loud that the only way to quiet them was to obey. And even though he knew he would get in trouble, he did it anyway. We told Danny that he didn't have to listen to the voices anymore. And we led Danny through the children's version of the steps to freedom. And this is a process that he goes through in counseling people who are struggling with whatever situation may be. And having prayed with him, having, having him pray the prayers after us, when we were done, we asked him how he felt. A big smile came on his face, and with a sigh of relief, he said, much better. His teacher noticed new calmness in him the next day, as though he were a different child. He had not repeated his aggressive behavior, behavior in school. So apparently, the counsel here, Neil T. Anderson, went through this process with him, and it actually improved his behavior. There were no medications the boy was under. He, just, he was hearing these voices. Now, I've never heard voices in my head. Usually when I hear a voice, it's is a source, and it's coming through the, through the airwaves to my ears. But 
Some claim they hear voices. Richard Ramirez, you ever heard that name? Night Stalker, serial killer from the mid-80s. Guilty of 13 counts of murder and various other crimes. Just a wicked, horrible person who died in prison. Now his, his, life, his life, I've read briefly about his, his upbringing, and it was just, just horrible beyond belief. You know, abusive dad, uh, divorced parents, an uncle who was probably worse than he was in some respects. He was a Vietnam veteran and shared with young Richard Ramirez uh, a lot of his experience that were just cannot repeat here. And this had an effect on him, obviously, to, to the point that he committed these heinous crimes. In interviews with him, he said he's always heard voices, always voices in his head telling him to do what he did, instructing him to do what he did. Now, many will pass it off, mental, mental illness, he needs, he needs this medication, that medication. Some don't even believe him. But it was interesting that he says the same thing that even a young five-year-old boy says or claims. Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland shooter, in interviews recently, he says, kill me, take me out. And he also says, I've been hearing voices for the last four or five years, shouting at me, telling me to do the things that I did. So we see this commonality through, and we, I, can, I can name many more. There are many of them saying they hear these voices, talking to them, speaking to them. What are they? This is nothing new, brethren. This goes back how many centuries, how many millennia? Did Cain have a chemical imbalance? Cain was not exposed to pesticides. Cain wasn't undergoing, undergoing vaccinations. Cain didn't eat hormone chicken. Cain wasn't taking Ambien. Cain didn't have any of that. But he did kill his brother, didn't he? Why did he do that? Oh, he was jealous. He was envious. What promoted that? What provoked that? We know what happened to his parents. They were influenced, were they not? They didn't start out that way. For all we know, we don't know how long they interacted with God in the Garden of Eden and never sinned, but eventually it happened. It took place. What caused it? What promoted it? What precipitated it? We know the answer. He that commits sin is of the devil, 1 John 3, 8 says, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. You know, he says that the devil comes only to steal and to kill. And that's his goal. That's his objective. And he does not stop. He will not stop until God stops him. God allows him so much leeway, so much room, but he allows him nonetheless. We have a responsibility. And it's all through God's word it tells us what it is. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee 
Pretty simple, isn't it? Resist. Just resist the devil and he's gone. Easy, easy to say, isn't it? It's individuals that are struggling with things right now in their minds, and they're having trouble. People in God's church, people of faith, people who are committed to God's law, committed to God's church, committed to the instruction book and God's word, that are struggling with resisting the devil. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded. See, the devil sins from the beginning, and we can resist, and he will go away from us. We draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to us. The Satan will flee. But the one moment, that one split second, that we decide we're going to entertain something lustful, Whatever it may be, guess what? He's back. He's right back. Because why is he back? Because we've invited him in. We've asked him to come in. As I said, and I've said it many times, and I've said it in a sermon recently, we're going to serve somebody in this world. We're going to serve someone. It's either going to be God or it's going to be Satan. There's no in-between. And if we're not serving God, whether we realize it or not, we're serving the adversary. We're serving him. We're doing his bidding. We're doing precisely what he wants us to do. And he wants to make us, he wants to create us into his image. He wants us to follow him in his ways until we are completely separated from God. And what we need to do, we hear a lot about today, what we need to do is build a wall. And I'm serious as I can be. We need to build a spiritual wall. We need to build an imaginary wall, a very solid wall, a very strong wall, a very high wall, a very thick wall. We need to, that wall needs to be between us and the God of this world. Build a wall. And don't straddle it. Some of us build a fence and we sit on it. We don't sit behind it we sit on it. And we feel good about ourselves. And we develop these strongholds that need to be tear, torn down. We have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And we find a way to rationalize what we've decided, because it's our thoughts. Don't say, oh, it's the devil's thoughts. It's our thoughts. He's just influencing them. Why is he influencing them? Because we are letting him. We're allowing him to do so. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God and resist, and he will flee. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. We know that passage in Ephesians 4. Neither give place for the devil, don't give opportunity for the devil. See, there are thoughts. They're our thoughts. We've just given him opportunity to exploit them. He sees. He sees what you are. You see, and we see what he is. See, I like to, um, I like to pick up snakes in the yard. Family members say, are you out of your mind? 
but I like to handle snakes. And when I see one, I know it's not venomous. So I can tell we only have three venomous snakes in South Carolina. It's the rattlesnake, the copperhead, and the moccasin. I don't handle those. But I will handle a, a non-venomous snake. But I know that that snake, even if it's non-venomous, he will bite me because they have. They've bitten me before. You know, if you don't handle them properly, they say people are bitten by snakes for, for only two reasons. Either they're handling the snake, like I do, or they're trying to kill the snake. And that's how they get bit. Leave them alone. Don't handle them. Don't try to kill them. Just leave them alone. They won't bother you. Stay away from them. See, when I pick one up, I know when I pick that snake up, there's a good chance he's going to bite me. And if he does bite me, you know why? Stupid me picked him up. But I knew that going in. I knew what he was capable of doing. I knew what he was when I picked him up. If I don't want to get bit, then I leave him alone. I stay away from him. It's as simple as that. But I can't help myself sometimes. When I see that snake, that... <laughs> That yellow rat snake, because they move slow, they're easy to catch, you know, they move real slow, and they'll just sit there sunning. I say, oh, look at him, and I'll reach down there and pick him up. <laughs> and then I'll take him to my, my son-in-law because he's deathly afraid of snakes. And he'll open the door and I'll say, look, ah, and he just starts, you know, he backs up, what are you doing, you know? It's just a snake. They'll bite you. And we know what they are. And we know how to avoid them if we only do it. We know the passage, brethren. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. See, these scriptures are there for a reason. I don't know how these wicked spirits do what they do. I don't understand their power. Just like I don't understand the power of God, which is much more powerful I just know Scripture tells me they're there. And that we wrestle with them, we war, we fight against these. Rules of darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor. We're in a battle. We know the passage. We, got, we have to remind ourselves daily, brethren, taking every thought into captivity. Because our thoughts can lead to ultimately sin. And God's people are no different than people out in the world in terms of struggling we struggle more because we understand what sin is and we understand God's word. People out in the world, they don't have a problem with it. They're complicit. Let's go. Whatever it takes, anything goes. It's all good. But we struggle. Take unto, you, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having, all this, all, having done all to stand. And what is that? So we know this, brethren. We know these scriptures. It's a passage, one of my favorite in Philippians 4, 4, is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He says it twice. Let your moderation, Paul says, be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is always at hand. The word moderation is really an unfortunate Translation, no, it's not an accurate interpretation. It's been a puzzle for interpreters. It means far more than a balance between two extremes when we think of moderation. You know, we're, we're in moderation. That's really not what it means. Um, it's rendered in some translation forbearance 
our gentleness, our mildness, although the, true, these words are, are not quite complete. Reasonable, reasonable, reasonableness of Christ or Christ-like reason is one of the best translations that I've been able to find. Let your Christ-like reasonableness or your Christ-like reason be exposed, be known to all men. And what is that? What is Christ-like reason? What is Christ-like reasonableness? Translated moderation or forbearance in other translations. It's really a composite virtue. It's hating the sin while loving the sinner. We've heard that over and over again. It's even mocked today, you know, when you say you hate the sin, love the sinner. But there's a lot of truth to that. We need to hate sin but not condemn the sinner. It's zeal coupled with discretion. It's being indignant without being vindictive. Being angry but sinning not, as we just read. It's not letting the sun go down on your wrath. That causes so much problems in the lives of many, especially married couples. It's holiness, sainthood, righteousness, goodness, purity, faith. Coupled with humility. See, that's that Christ-like reasonableness. We start feeling good about ourselves and we're righteous and, and, and holiness and purity and doing all these good things. We start feeling really too good about ourselves and we become self-righteous. And we start serving ourselves if we're not careful, you see. And Satan will exploit that as well. When he sees, okay, this person, I, I'm watching him, I'm watching her, I'm watching what they do, I'm seeing how they're, they're manipulating and they're doing all these wonderful things, we just, we're going to work on that. We're going to work on that to, to, to the point that we're, we become kind of like Job, you know, starting feeling too good about ourselves. I have to learn some things and start talking about things we know nothing about, as Job did. He goes on to say in verse 6 of Philippians 4, Be careful for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Nobody in this room worries. There's nothing to worry about, right? I talk about that a lot, worrying, because worry stresses. We worry about things that never happen. I joke that, that Pam does all the worrying for me because she's a worrier. She likes to worry. I think it makes her feel good. No, she doesn't. She doesn't enjoy it. It's taken me a while. It's taken me some years, and I'm not boasting. I don't worry about anything anymore, brethren. Oh, yeah, I get... I get uh, stressed out at times, you know, and being on time or whatever the situation may be, but I don't worry. I don't worry what's going to happen because every time I worry about what's going to happen, it never happens. It just never happens. And whatever happens, it works out. It always, I'm still here. I'm still alive. And it always works out. It didn't kill me. So many times that I've, I've, you know, I've prayed that, like Jesus Christ, on the night of his betrayal, my situation not near as grave as his was, but I pray if there's any other way, let this cut pass. I don't want to do this. I don't want to confront this. I don't want to have to deal with this situation. I want to just go away. But I have to end with not my will, but your will. And his will is that I've got to go through it. I've got to contend with it. I've got to do it. I've got to commit to it. And then it happens. I have to confront it. I have to deal with it. I'm still here. Get through it and say, that wasn't so bad. God can bring me through it. 
He can make anything work toward good if I have the right attitude, the right commitment, the right understanding. He makes it happen. He makes it work. How does he do that? I don't know. All I know is he's God, and he's perfect, and he can make it happen. He can bring me through anything because he has that power. The very power that created the universe dwells in me. Sometimes I forget that, or I can forget that. I have to remind myself that he gives me a power that can overcome you name it, especially my own temptation, my own lust, my own struggles with the flesh. He can get me through that. But you know what? I've got to ask him. I've got to depend and rely on him, not on myself. As Jesus Christ said, of myself I can do nothing. How did he walk the earth sinless, pure, 33 and a half years without sin? Power of the Holy Spirit. No other way. Don't think you can get by without it. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Whatever it is, let it be known. And the peace of God. We need peace of mind, brethren. We need that peace in our minds. Our minds are, are, in cha- are chaotic. There are a lot of things going on in our mind that, that distract us from serving God the way we should, that distract us from doing the things we do in God's church or serving God's church or our family, that distract us from being the best child of God we can be. We need to go to God. The peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds, your naoma, through Christ Jesus. And then finally, we want to ask, how do we do it? How do we avoid, and there's a lot of reasons, we don't have time to go into them, but primarily is this, and Paul talks about it right here, how do we avoid the efforts and the subtleties and the schemes and the devices and the temptations of Satan the devil? Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatever is honest, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever things of good report, if there be any virtue and if there are any praise, think on these things, dwell on these things, meditate on these things, all these good things. Those things which, verse 9, which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. The God of peace shall be with you. Resist. That's how we do it. We don't say, be gone, Satan. It's not about just articulating, get out of here. We can say that all we want to. We've got to follow this instruction. The peace that passes all understanding. There is nothing compares to it. But it's only there. It only exists in our minds. We only have that peace of mind when we're at peace with God. When we have a relationship with him. We draw near him. He'll draw closer to us. That's how we sustain peace, the peace that passes all understanding in our minds. Thank you, brethren.